Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the creation of life and biological diversity, part 11. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. Today we want to turn to an assessment of what I'm calling the monotheistic Hebrew myth interpretation of Genesis 1. You remember we concluded last time by saying that the question raised by Soden and Miller's book is whether or not Genesis uh, belongs to the literary genre of myth, as do the Egyptian creation myths. The difference between them would lie not in their literary genre, but rather in their theology. In contrast to the polytheistic Egyptian myths, on this view, Genesis is a monotheistic Hebrew myth. So what might we say by way of assessment of this view? The exploration of this question requires us to say a word about the nature or the character of myth. The biblical scholar J.W. Rogerson observes that today the range of meaning of the word myth is so broad that, he says, quote, the word can hardly be wrongly used, end quote. For example, on April 4 of 2019, I saw a Reuters news headline that read, Major Study Debunks Myth That Moderate Drinking Can Be Healthy. Here is the popular understanding of the word myth to mean a falsehood. Now this leads the eminent folklorist Alan Dundas to exclaim, nothing so infuriates a folklorist more than to hear a colleague from the anthropology or literature department use the word myth to refer to anything from an erroneous statement to an archetypal theme, end quote. Rather, ever since the groundbreaking work of Jakob and Wilhelm Grimm, the famous brothers Grimm, whom you know from their study of uh, fairy tales, there are three types of narrative which are studied by students of folklore, namely myths, folk tales, we often call them fairy tales, but they're not all really about fairies, folk tales, and then legends. Now, folk tales are uh, prose narratives which in the society in which they are told are regarded as fiction. The events that they relate may or may not have happened. They are not to be taken seriously as dogma or as history. They usually recount the adventures of animal or human characters and may be said at any time in any place. A good example of a folktale would be the story of Little Red Riding Hood um, or Hansel and Gretel. Now, in contrast to this, legends are set in a time that is less remote than the myths. Um, in legends, the world was pretty much then as it is today. 
they are more often secular than sacred, and their person, uh, principal characters are merely human beings. A good example of legends would be the stories of Robin Hood, which have some basis in history, but now have accumulated stories about that historical person um, that uh, are not regarded as historically reliable. Finally, according to Dundas, myths are sacred narratives which explain how the world and man came to be in their present form. Since this is so important, let me repeat that characterization. Myths are sacred narratives which explain how the world and man came to be in their present form. Now, some features of this disarmingly simple characterization deserve comment. First, notice on this definition that a myth is a linguistic composition, either oral or literary. It's a linguistic composition. In contrast to common parlance, then, specialists do not take the word myth to be synonymous with falsehood. Neither do they use the word myth in the popular sense to refer to some sort of idea such as the myth of the noble savage uh, or the myth of the self-made man. Rather, a myth is a thing composed of words. It's a, a linguistic composition. Secondly, it is a narrative. It is a narrative. That is to say, it's a story which will involve characters and a plot line. A myth describes a sequence of events. Thirdly, it's a sacred narrative. That is to say, it has religious significance in the culture in which it is embraced. That implies it will have something to do with deity as one of its principal figures. It will be stories about God or gods. Fourth, it is assumed that it is a traditional narrative, one that's handed down over the generations. It's not a recent free composition. Accordingly, we could improve Dundas' characterization by making this assumption explicit. A myth is a traditional sacred narrative. Finally, a myth seeks to explain present realities by anchoring them in the past, understood to mean the prehistorical past. The origin of the world and of mankind are just two examples of such present realities, and the list could be extended. This key feature of myths is called by specialists etiology. It comes from the Greek word aitia, which means cause. And myths are characterized by etiological motifs, where some present reality, a natural uh, feature of the world, or a religious practice, or uh, mankind, or something of that sort, will be explained by tracing its origins back to this prehistoric age. And this presence of etiological motifs is a key earmark of myths. Now, is there any question or comment about 
this differentiation between folk tales, legends, and myths. Jacob, down front here. So I guess uh, one thing I've always misunderstood when it came to myths was I always took it as, you know, fiction too. Like these stories never happen. And uh, just recently I kind of learned that's not really the case. Right. And with that being said, I've always confused on what the purpose of a myth was for. Um, what is the purpose of the, the writing or, you know, why the Egyptians would use such stories? Yes. If that That is... The perfect question to ask, Jacob. And the answer is, <laughs> All right. the purpose is etiological. Yeah. It is to ground present realities uh, in a culture in these prehistoric roots. Um, and that is the function that myths play. So, for example, in John Collins' recent book, Reading Genesis Well, Collins would not say that the genre of Genesis 1 to 11 is myth. He would say the genre is prose narrative. But he would say their function is myth. They function as myths in Israelite culture to ground present realities in the prehistoric past, in the primeval history of Genesis 1 to 11. Cash. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about while we were talking about the, this differentiation in myth is the work that the uh, authors that were a part of the Inklings did in terms of rehabilitating hmm. the concept of myth in the Can in you explain to the circles. class who the Inklings yes. were? So, so the, the Inklings were the gr- uh, unofficial group of writers in Oxford, England, that could, were composed of people like C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Dorothy Sayers, um, and other like-minded Christian uh, lovers of mythology and fairy tales and uh, things like that. Um, and I wanted to read, there's a quote uh, from J.R. Tolkien that I, that I was thinking about that I just pulled up, where in a letter to his son, he said, Of course, I do not mean that the Gospels tell what is only a fairy story, but what I do mean very strongly is that they do tell a fairy story, the greatest. Man, the storyteller, would have to be redeemed in a manner consonant with his nature by a moving story. But since the author of it is the supreme artist and the author of reality, this one was also made to be true on the primary plane. So basically, Tolkien and Lewis's thinking, and this was one of the things that led Lewis to become a Christian, was that this was basically the uh, that that God's uh, writing of this story of you know what, what's going on throughout the Bible, but mainly in the Gospels, is the uh, bringing forth into reality the what all the myths wanted. You know that that we we created these myths because this is what we wanted all along was this kind of uh, redeeming story and that the supreme artist God brought into reality a true myth. So, yes. like, so Lewis called it the, the true myth. Yes. Was, All right, so. thank you, Cash. Now, in the quotation you read, it was, I think, evident, or should have been evident to you, that what Tolkien was calling fairy stories or fairy tales was really myth. Right. Uh, yes. Whereas I've tried to differentiate right. between well, these. Yeah. When he when he says fairy tale, he means studies. like a, a yes, like a legendary or, or quote legendary story myth. Uh, any of those terms, they were basically using them to say the uh, um, the 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 kind of con- the consciousness of storytelling in people, which is uh, mythopoeic in nature. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Ben. Wouldn't it still have to be admitted, though, that even if you believed a myth, there would still have to be some element of it that is either not literally true? 
Well, that's a future question now, Ben, that we will need to explore, won't we? Um, First, we want to ask, what is the genre? And then we'll ask, how do societies understand their myths? Do they take them as literal truth or figuratively? It's clear they believe them. They think they embody deep truths. But then that's a further question that needs to be explored. Thank you. David has a question. I wonder if there is crossover between these or or are they distinct from each other and and maybe I'm misusing legends here but is there perhaps a point where a legendary figure think of Moses let's say Uh. who who is an actual historical figure but he is so famous or revered that he uh, that that perhaps things that aren't true about him might come into being and that he becomes an archetype for things to come and thus enters the realm of myth. This is much discussed among theorists of myth. Um, Many of the ancient Greek uh, philosophers thought that the gods or heroes in these myths were actually historical persons at one point in the past who, as you say, have become, in a sense, mythicized and they really were, at one time, historical. I, I think, if my memory serves me right, that that's called euhemism. But that's a view that is largely discarded today. Um, and so the line between legends, which are about purely human persons, and myths would be fairly clean-cut. The The closest to being on the boundary would be the stories of heroes like Hercules and other Greek heroes who were part man, part human, have a divine father and a human mother. And sometimes it's disputed as to whether or not we should call these heroic tales myths, but they are usually classed as myths because they still involve the gods as principal figures in the stories. Brad? Yeah, I'm confused. I, I think saying that myths could be true does a disservice to our use of the word myths. Could I say that uh, evolution is a myth? This is a really interesting question, Brad, because uh, I have seen certain people say that uh, evolution is a kind of contemporary myth that seeks to ground present realities like the life forms we see today in ourselves in the primordial prehistoric past. And so that it actually functions as a sort of myth. But that would be the sense, again, of an archetypal idea. Remember that I talked about the myth of the noble savage or the myth of the self-made man. That's not a myth in the sense that the folklorist is using it, where he's talking about literary compositions. But in that archetypal sense, I think that a good case could be made that it serves as a sort of modern equivalent of a myth. It's old enough. I'm old. I remember it when I was young. It was taught to me when I was young, so it's got to be a, it's an ancient yeah. myth. <laughs> okay, anyone else? These are good comments. So, then to recap, myths are sacred narratives which seek to explain how the world and man came to be in their present form. Now, so understood, Genesis 1 to 11 clearly meet these criteria, I think. The primeval history of Genesis 1 to 11 is a traditional, 
sacred narrative which seeks to answer, uh, anchor rather, uh, present realities to the Pentateuchal author, such as the world, mankind, natural phenomena, cultural practices, and prevailing religious practices in a primordial time. So on this definition, uh, Genesis 1 to 11 would belong to the literary type of myth. Now the claim here is not, is not that Genesis 1 to 11 are derived from ancient Near Eastern myths. After the discovery and the publication of the Babylonian myths in the late 19th century, many Old Testament scholars went overboard in assessing their relevance to the Genesis account. There arose among Old Testament scholars the pan-Babylonian school that claimed that not only Genesis, but even Greek mythology was derived from Babylonian myths. Today, however, few scholars defend the claim that Genesis 1 to 11 is based on pagan myths. The one exception would be the flood story um, in the Neo-Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh. The Gilgamesh epic evolved over thousands of years, but in the most recent recensions, the Neo-Babylonian recension, the um, epic of Gilgamesh uh, contains uh, a flood story that includes an episode about the survivor of the flood releasing successively several birds to see if the dry land had appeared and it was safe to exit the boat. But even here, direct dependence of Genesis on the Epic of Gilgamesh is very difficult to prove because the episode about the birds was added later to the Gilgamesh story, being attested no earlier than 750 BC. 750 BC is the earliest we have of the episode of the birds included in the flood story in Gilgamesh. And that may be after the biblical traditions arose. The biblical traditions could well be earlier than that. Far too many uh, Old Testament scholars fell prey to what the um, New Testament scholar Samuel Sandmel called parallelomania. Samuel Sandmel, in a very famous uh, article, Parallelomania. Sandmel observed that in order to establish the dependence claims that these critics wanted to make, they would need to establish three subsidiary claims. First, they would have to prove that the texts really are parallel, that there is a genuine parallel between the biblical text and these texts. Secondly, they would have to show that the parallels are to be explained by a causal connection between the texts, that the texts are causally linked. And then thirdly, they would need to show that the causal connection is asymmetrical. That is to say that the causal influence ran in only one direction 
in this case from the Babylonian texts to the biblical text. And doing this is extraordinarily difficult. Focusing on isolated similarities between texts courts the danger of cherry-picking. To give an illustration of cherry-picking, we all know about the terrible disaster that occurred when uh, an airliner on its way from Massachusetts to New York crashed into one of New York's tallest buildings between the 77th and the 85th floors shortly after 9 a.m., setting it on fire and resulting in the loss of everyone on board and many office workers. The terrorist attacks of 911? No. Rather, the crash of a B-25 into the Empire State Building on July 28, 1945. By cherry-picking details, one can create the illusion of parallelism when, in fact, none actually exists. And I think that Miller and Soden are guilty of just this sort of cherry-picking. Consider their most important claim about the primordial states being a dark, watery chaos in both Genesis and the Egyptian myths. Now, how is the primordial state described in the first chapter of Genesis? Well, Genesis 1 and verse 2 states, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters, end quote. And this is alleged to resemble the primordial state in Egyptian myths. Now, I am certainly open to following the evidence to where it leads, but I must say that I think Miller and Soden have been very sloppy in drawing alleged parallels between Genesis 1, verse 2, and uh, Egyptian creation myths. Now, before I explain why, let me ask if there's any question or discussion at this point. Yes, over here, please, Steve. So if the flood predated the Tower of Babel, right? Do you mean in the narrative? Yes, sir. Yes, right. I'm wondering how the Egyptians would have a story of the flood. This isn't really a fully fleshed out question, but uh, if the Egyptians had a story of the flood separate, and, and even the Babylonians having a story of the flood if they were not cultures at that time. I mean, because was Noah and his family were the only survivors of the flood, the worldwide flood? I'm not Correct. sure I understand the question. How are these we're, separate we're, narratives that the Egyptians have of a flood? and um, The, the Babylonians, other, you mean. Babel, sorry, the Babylonians yeah. in this case. Um, how do the Babylonians have a narrative of the same flood if they were not like the Babylonians yet, if that makes sense? If they, they separate out the time well, of you're, okay, you're asking a historical question, yeah. whereas I'm asking a literary question. What we're asking is, is there a literary dependence of the Genesis account of the flood on these Babylonian flood stories? That's a literary story. Now, that's a totally different question from asking, well, where did the Babylonians get this story? Um, you could say, well, they just made it up. It's, it's just a myth that they invented um, to explain present realities in their society and 
This got copied by other cultures, including the Israelite culture. Or you could say, as some do, that this is traced back to a memory of a very ancient flood event that was then subsequently handed down and remembered in Babylonian tradition and perhaps independently in biblical tradition. As I say, the closest resemblance of the biblical story to the Babylonian story is this episode about the birds being released to find the dry land. And that doesn't appear in the original epic of Gilgamesh. Indeed, the original epic has no flood story at all. The flood story gets incorporated later, and then the bird episode gets incorporated even later. It's attested no earlier than 750 BC. Well, by that time, it may well be that this story was already present in ancient Israel um, and maybe wasn't derived from these Babylonian narratives. So at this point, we're not asking the historical question. We're just asking a literary question. And I'm just informing you that the the wide majority opinion today is that there is no literary dependence of Genesis 1 to 11 on these pagan myths, with the possible exception of this flood story uh, in the Epic of Gilgamesh. So what that would mean is that the creation account in Genesis 1, which is our focus, is independent of Babylonian and Egyptian myths of creation. Uh, so you talked about the three criteria that are necessary to show dependence. Could you give an example of two documents that do meet those criteria? Oh, my. Um, well, uh, let's just think about the, the flood story and the episode of the uh, birds. Um, the claim here would be that the stories are indeed parallel. In the biblical story, Noah releases first a raven, and then he releases one dove three successive times. So there are two birds, first the raven, and then the dove three times. In the Babylonian story, Unat Pishtim, the Noah equivalent, releases three birds. Uh, He releases um, a dove and then a swallow, and then a raven last. So you've got similarities there, but differences as well, don't you? And so the similarities have led many scholars to say it looks like there's some kind of dependence here, that there's some kind of relation. Now the second uh, factor would be that there's a causal connection between them. Not just that they're similar, but that there's a causal connection. And here, many scholars would say that they are so similar. The idea that there's a a flood, there's a boat, there's a survivor of the flood who releases birds to find the dry land, that these are so close that there needs to be some kind of causal connection between these. This couldn't just be by accident. And then the third factor would be that it's one way. And that's very difficult to show. How do you know that these are not independent um, narratives from some earlier tradition that, that arose independently of each other? 
Or how do you know for sure that the biblical account didn't influence the Babylonian story? That might seem to be absurd, except when you think that um, during the reign of Solomon, uh, around 950 BC, um, you have a very significant cultural uh, power in Israel that had trade with Mesopotamia, had ocean-going vessels, um, and had cultural influence. It's not impossible that some Babylonian scribe or merchant heard the story um, from Israelite uh, uh, traditions and incorporated into the Gilgamesh account rather late in its evolution. So that would just be an illustration of the, the difficulty in how one might go about trying to show literary dependence. Um, and Sandmel's point was that too often scholars seem to be a, afflicted with this parallelomania where they draw these parallels without really showing these three features of the narratives. Yes? I was just wondering if there were any specific details in the Genesis account in Genesis 1 and 2 uh, that would defy the parallelomania that, that seem to be strangely absent from people who say that they closely resemble these mythologies. Mm. Something like uh, creation ex nihilo or something like yeah, that. Yeah, certainly you could. I, I mean, the fact that there's an absence of deities is perhaps the most striking, is that you don't have any theogony. You don't have any primordial combat between the gods. Um, it's, it's a monotheistic story with a transcendent God that is completely sovereign and differentiated from nature. And in that sense, it's very, very different. Now, Miller and Soden recognize these differences, but they say, but look at the similarity between the dark, watery chaos that features in both of these myths. And to now bring us back onto track, that's what I want to challenge. I don't think that they have um, analyzed the situation carefully enough to show that these uh, elements of the story really are parallel. Yes. Um, Dr. Craig, uh, there are two things um, that I wanted to um, seek your opinion. Um, the first is that uh, the literary, uh, the Chinese ancient history, actually combined the historical and literary together because as they try to document what's important, they draw pictures. And those pictures become the meaning of their literature uh, in, in form of character. So there's, there may not be literature talking about Genesis story, but the character itself reveal Genesis story in many, many uh, facts that the reason why they put a woman in front of the two trees, and that is greediness, or the revelation before two trees, that's, that's revelation, Mm -hmm. All kind of things like this, they compose and embed it in Chinese character. So 
Um, so now, now, Taiwan, if I just might interrupt, while I understand that's the case with Chinese, that's not the same with Hebrew. Hebrew isn't a pictorial language. There the characters are not pictures of things as in Chinese. Right. And the second thing is that as um, after the Tower of Babel, different culture emerged. Um, we can think of Noah's three sons and Noah himself. They started different branches of um, people, group, and that down the line, the grandchildren, the, the offspring start to ask to trace what happened in the ancient time, and there are different, at least four different interpretations, uh-huh. um, but then they all consolidate to some kind of impression that passed down through the line. So we can say that um, that's how each person record the detail in a yeah. little difference, uh, and, and yet they all kind of have the large same phenomena. Yeah. This is addressing the historical yes. question that yes. this gentleman raised over here. And uh, I'm going to just leave that aside, uh, at least for now, because that's not germane to the question that we're asking at this time. So we'll just leave that aside. Now, what we'll do next time is I want to suggest two reasons as to why we should be skeptical about uh, Miller and Soden's claim that there are significant parallels between Genesis 1 and these Egyptian creation myths so as to show some sort of uh, causal connection between them. So that will be next week. Let's close with a word of prayer today. Father, we thank you that uh, as intelligent persons with rational minds, we can think hard about these difficult questions and reflect on them. And we pray that um, these reflections would be helpful um, to us in this class. Lord, now as we go into our week, we pray that you would guide us and fill us with your Holy Spirit um, and help us to glorify you in all that we think and do and say. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.